we can make our way back, I'm going to read the Bible for us. So today's Bible reading comes from the book of Ezra. We're going to read over two chapters, different parts. So um, the first part from Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 to 4, and then we'll jump to Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. So if you have a Bible from up the back on the table, um, turn to page 381 and you'll find Ezra chapters 9 and 10. But before I read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear your word. Speak, O Lord, to our hearts. May um, our hearts be changed um, as you teach us, Father. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. And it's one of these readings that starts in the middle of something, so you'll have to glance back to chapter 8 to know what the things have been done. So, after these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there, appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then chapter 10. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehoahan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Good morning. Um, Annette has prayed that we would understand what we're looking at this morning and she's read two parts of it. On the screen behind me is a, a, where we've been on our way through Ezra. 
And last week was a bit of a high point when we saw Ezra as an example of someone living by the word of God. And today, the book finishes on a, on a low point. That last bit that was read, I reckon, look at 10 verse 3. That's a concerning verse, I think. It seems so harsh. Maybe it's overdone. And you scratch your head and you think, is it actually right? Um, 10 verse 15, what you'll see down there, that wasn't read for us, but you look, if you look down at 10 verse 15, you'll see that some people don't think the actions that were taken that day were the right thing to do. And then you look across these chapters and just instinctively what it says about intermarrying, it sounds elitist, maybe even racist. And of course, as we look at this, as New Testament Christians, you can't help wondering and thinking about what the implications are for us and for marriage. So as we look at Ezra, I reckon you need to have Ezra open in a Bible that you can flip around easily in. If that's on a device, you're quicker than me. And I reckon today, another passage to write down is 1 Corinthians 7. And have a longer, slower look at that in your own time. What we have here in Ezra, though, is a complex mess. It's a complex mess because that is what the consequences of unfaithfulness to God will lead to, a mess. Um, there was a small little example of this that I heard this week, and that is a minister, a Christian minister in the United States who's had to stand aside because of a phone conversation or more than one phone conversations with another woman, not his wife. I don't know what the conversations were about, but you'd think, you know, that's a private thing. They're on the phone. And yet here on the other side of the globe, we're seeing the consequences of it. There's consequences for him and his family, for her and her family, and for the wide network of churches that they're a part of that reaches to Australia. Sin is like that. There's no such thing as private sin. It creates this horrible interconnected mess Sin creates a complex mess, and we know as Christians that Jesus' death in our place is sufficient to take the price, pay the price for all of that, to set things right. We also know that as Christians, Jesus is the Lord and the judge, and he will sort out all the mess. When he returns, you'll see things plain as day, you'll understand everything for what it is. And when he returns, on that day, we'll also see God's wrath and God's judgment and his mercy. But back here in Ezra, chapter 9 and 10, what we're seeing is Israel's sin recorded for us, their unfaithfulness to God. And so we learn as Christians, we learn from their mistakes. It's recorded here for us so that we can learn from their mistakes. Our God hasn't changed. He still has standards. He still expects holiness of his people. Our God hasn't changed. He remains faithful. A lot else has changed, but God hasn't. And so we need to learn to trust as we look at this and learn our lessons from it. We should learn to trust Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. So let's start from the beginning. If you go back to 9 verse 1, um, 9 verses 1 to 2 shows this is a bigger issue than marriage. Okay, so it's a bigger issue than marriage. God's people have shown deep unfaithfulness to the God who has shown them unfailing faithfulness. And so verse 1 opens, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples 
with their detestable practices and it lists the neighbouring peoples. The primary concern is that the people of God have not lived as God's people. They haven't stayed holy. You know, the, the kid's definition of holy is to belong to. So my watch is holy to me. It's mine. Similarly, God's people are holy to him. They belong to him. And so they should be separate from those that are not. Um, these, these people have, have failed to be holy to God, which is the reason they were sent into exile in the first place. And here they are, they've been rebuilding and they're doing the same things again. God's plan is to have his holy people in his place under his rule. God's plan is to dwell with his people. Way back in, Gen in Exodus, which if you're reading through the Bible in two years, you're not there yet. But when you read through Exodus, you'll come to chapter 19 where God saves his people out of slavery in Egypt, gathers them round Mount Sinai. And listen to what happens there. So 19 verse 3, Exodus. Um, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's saying, you know that I have saved you. And then now, verse 5, now if you obey me fully, and keep my covenant, then out of the nations you will be a treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God's plan is for this people that he has saved, made his own. His plan is that they would be holy to him, stand apart from the nations. And then you see the people's response. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them the words of the Lord, um, that he commanded him to speak. And verse 8, the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. And they failed to do everything the Lord had said, time and time again. And here in Ezra, they're there again. They're not being holy. When you consider the practices of the people around, the nations around, you start to understand how important it is for God's people to be separate, to be holy. The way the nations around worshipped other gods that are no god. The way they even offered child sacrifices to their gods that are no god. It makes sense for God's people to draw lines in the sand. To not participate, to not be like the nations around them. Still in Exodus, you come to the next chapter, you come to Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And let me remind you how they begin. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to worship to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God expects his people to put their trust in him and to be faithful to him, to put him first in everything. And here in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, the people have given up being distinctive. They're blending in with the nations around, adopting their practices. Um, back in chapter 7 and 8, we saw that um, Ezra came from Jerusalem. He's a priest. He is a teacher of the law of Moses. He would have been teaching Exodus, the bits I showed you, to the people. He would have been teaching them the Ten Commandments, telling them how important it is for them to be set apart, to be holy to God. And then in 9 verse 1, Ezra is told that that's not what they're doing. 
Then you look at 9 verse 2. They've taken some of, um, some of their, like the nations around that's referring to, they've taken some of their nation's daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around. So intermarrying with the nations around is just part of this problem. The problem is that they're mingling with the nations around, they're participating in their practices, and it shows itself in their willingness to intermarry and become part of the nations in that way, instead of being a holy people set apart for God. Um, you might recall, uh, it's, I think it's two years ago now, but we went through one and two kings just as COVID was messing things up. I remember recording sermons, but Solomon made this same mistake, didn't he? Great King Solomon. And when you look at 1 Kings 11 verse 1, you'll see the same nations listed, the same peoples. Solomon did the same thing. So 1 Kings 11 verse 1, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Solomon's failure to be faithful to God led to the kingdom of Israel being split in two under his sons. And the king in the, in the north actually set up two golden calves so the people could worship at those points rather than going to Jerusalem to worship. That's what sin's like. If you're unfaithful to God, it creates a horrible mess, a horrible mess with all sorts of consequences and all sorts of contradictions. And so here in Ezra chapter 9 verse 2, unfaithfulness shows itself in a willingness to intermarry with the nations around and become part of them. But if you're on the ball this morning and you're looking at this, you'll be thinking, yeah, but the Israelites did intermarry and it didn't lead to, to consequences. I mean, what about, what about Rahab? I mean, she becomes part of the nation of Israel. What about Ruth? She marries Boaz and she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. She's a Moabitess. That's one of the nations listed here. I think the difference with Ruth is if you look at what she said to her mother-in-law, she goes, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And so when she marries Boaz, she comes into the nation of Israel. She doesn't draw Boaz into the nation of Moab. It's the other way around. It's not what you see happening here in Ezra, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Or Rahab is, is similar. Um, Rahab, when they, uh, she helped the spies, and, and remember what she says? She says, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She changed allegiances. She worked against her own countrymen. She effectively came out of the nations and made herself holy to the God of Israel. I take it the issue back here in Ezra 9 verses 1 to 2 is that by marrying foreigners, the opposite's happening. They're cementing in this relationship with the nations around, becoming like them instead of being holy and devoted to God. But there's another layer of the mess in Ezra chapters 9 to 10, and you've probably seen it already. The priests were only to marry from within Israel. It says so in Leviticus it's reinforced in Ezekiel. Look again at 9 verse 1, Ezra 9 verse 1. After these things have been done, 
the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites. And then if you look down in verse 2, and the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. The leaders of, the, of Israel and the priests within Israel are leading the way in compromising. They're leading the way in unfaithfulness to God. In chapter 10, you have a list of all those who were intermarried. And if you look at that list, it's got two parts to it. it starts with the priests, and then at verse 25, it switches to, and from the other Israelites. The priests and those involved in the temple listed first, and then the rest of Israel. More is expected of the priests than of the average Israelite. But in 9 verses 1 to 2, they're leading the way in unfaithfulness to God. God wants his people to be devoted to living for him, holy to him. And we've seen in the book of Ezra so far how unfailingly faithful God is. And you'll see it again in Ezra's prayer of confession. But his people are unfaithful to him. Today, Ezra 9 and 10 show us the exact opposite of what Ezra the man himself was doing back in last week's passage as he tried to live for God. And so as Christians, yeah, we read this part of the Old Testament. We know that holiness still matters. God expects his people to be holy. But there's a lot that's changed in between now and then, mainly Jesus. He's come. But God remains the same. He expects his people to be holy. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan's been at work deceiving, drawing people away from living the way that God expects us to live. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we've followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. We have willfully turned our hearts away from God. It's, it's like we're like that lawn bowl. It, they just don't roll straight. That's us by nature. Um, prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they promise a future time when God will write his law on people's hearts. In other words, where God will be at work in people, causing them to want to live his way. We know that that time has begun with Jesus. We know Jesus has dealt with sin. We know that Jesus has conquered death. We know that by his spirit, he is at work in us. But until Jesus returns, the work is unfinished. Until Jesus returns and the day of God's wrath arrives, we battle with sin. Until Jesus returns, we can identify with what's happening here in Ezra because we have those same tendencies like that bowling ball. Here in Ezra, what we see is Israel at their worst, showing deep unfaithfulness to God, to the God who's been unfailingly faithful to them. And I think what you see in the rest of the passage is just how messy it gets. So first look how serious it is. If you look in verse 3, um, when I, when Ezra, heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. He's doing everything outwardly to show inwardly how appalled he is at this situation. I don't know how Ezra could have been unaware to this point. But once he does hear the reality of the unfaithfulness of the people, it hits him. And as he um, sits there appalled, Others join him. So in verse 4, Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. It leads to Ezra praying a prayer of confession on behalf of his people. Um, he prays a prayer of confession and he also praises God 
for God's faithfulness. Ezra's prayer, I think it adds to our comprehension of the sin here. So if you look at the second half of verse 6, he says, I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. He's kind of reflecting back on the sinfulness of the people, including Solomon and the way they've been judged, even still are as they live under the Persian kings. So in 8 verses 9 then, Ezra praises God for the way that he has been active, preserving a remnant, the way that God has been has used the Persians to help them repair Judah and Jerusalem and build their temple. And then you come to verse 10, but now, oh, oh, but now oh, our God, what can we say after this? For we've forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples, by their detestable practices. They have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance, reflecting on the way that God told them when you come into the land, separate yourself from the nations around. And then in verse 15, I think what Ezra is doing there is throwing himself at God's mercy as he recognizes the seriousness of the sin of his people. And he's joined by a large crowd of people. They're also weeping. And then that is the context for, I think, some tricky verses. If you come to 10 verse 2. When Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. There's one little bit in there. It says, according to, um, in accordance with the counsel of my Lord. I think he's referring to Ezra. I'm guessing Ezra has been saying, this is the problem. This is what you need to do. And here's Shechaniah saying, yeah, that's what we've got to do. Um, the proposal in verse 3 is significant to send away all these women and children. It's the bit that makes you think, Why? is that right? Um, it's significant to Shechaniah because in verse 2 you'll see his father is Jehiel. He's a descendant of Elam, verse 2. When you look at the list of men who intermarried, in verse 26 you'll see Shechaniah's own father is listed. And so what he's proposing here to do impacts on him and his family in a big way he's genuinely attempting to address the mess and if you look at the, what he says again he's saying let's it be done according to the law he's trying to do things by the law of god genuinely attempting to set things right but as we look at it it just leaves us with so many questions in verse 5 ezra what he does is he puts the plan into action the leading priests and the Levites, they take an oath that they will follow through on it. In verses 7 to 8, there's the decree that's sent out with force. So if you don't gather here in Jerusalem to sort this mess out, you'll lose your property. In verse 9, they do gather and they're distressed by the situation. And there's this bit where it says they're also distressed by the rain. Um, 10 verses 
10 to 13, they agree to disband because of the rain and leave the matter to the officials to unravel in coming days. So if you look at verse 14, let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judge the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. And then if you look down in verse 16, so the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to investigate the cases and on the first day of the first month, I take it there's a couple of months in here, um, on the first day of the, of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. The action taken to address the unfaithfulness of the people, you look at it, and yes, it's orderly. It's not rushed. It took a few months to do it. It's drastic. They're attempting to be obedient to the law of God. Maybe it included mercy. I mean, what did it mean in verse 3 to send away the women and their children? Does it mean just you know, disassociate them from the temple? I don't think so. I think it means this equivalent of divorce. What would happen to those women and their children? Well, I'm guessing that some would go back to their family of origin in the nations around. Maybe some were cared for amongst the Israelites, like they, in Leviticus 19, where it talks about caring for the poor and the foreigner. Maybe. Perhaps there were some like Ruth or the, the Moabite who was prepared to realign and be an Israelite? I don't know. These are the questions that I don't have answers to. There's lots we're not told. I mean, did it take months to sort through because of the details like that? Maybe. But you look at it and undoubtedly, this is messy. On Thursday night with the men's growth group, we didn't do the Nehemiah study. We read, read through this passage and yeah, we came to the same point. This is messy. Added to the mess is 10 verse 15, four men didn't even agree with the action taken. They're listed there. So the action taken wasn't unanimous. Verse 15, though, our instinct is to say these men probably thought it was too extreme, but that may not be the case. They may have thought the action should, is, wasn't harsh enough. Maybe they thought there should be stonings here. We're not told. All we can say for certain is that the action taken by Ezra, it wasn't unanimously supported by the people and the other thing is I can't see that we're told here that God agreed with what they did there are other examples in the Bible of messy sin anything you read in the book of Judges takes you that way think about Gideon for example or Samson they're examples of situations where there's kind of a less than ideal resolution at the end of the day I think Ezra chapter 9 to 10 leaves us pondering the messiness of sin and and unfaithfulness to God and the consequences of it and the difficulty of sorting and wading your way through it to set things right. Ezra 9 to 10 leaves us longing for Jesus to return because he's the one who will sort out the mess finally and completely. Jesus will bring perfect justice, perfect mercy, unlike our feeble human attempts at being faithful to God. As Christians, though, as we read through this part of the Old Testament, yeah, holiness and faithfulness, they still matter. A lot has changed, but God does remain the same. As we consider what has changed, there's some things I, sh I think I should point out. In the New Testament, for a beginning, in the New Testament, there's no objection to 
interracial marriage. In Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, no slave nor free. In fact, a marriage like that is almost a demonstration of gospel unity. It's a good thing. That's a massive difference. Other things, I think, need to be said. Um, Dating a non-Christian, yeah, that does raise questions about your commitment to God. If you're prepared to do that, it raises questions about how faithfully you're living for God because necessarily your priorities, if you are a Christian, your priorities will be different to the person you're dating. As a Christian, you'll be putting Jesus first in everything. And so, as a Christian dating a non-Christian, you're going to be presented with pressure to compromise and not put Jesus first. When the Apostle Paul talks about not being unequally yoked, it's a passage Christians go to and refer to marriage. He's not talking about marriage, but there is a truth in it. Why would you set yourself up to be unequally yoked like that? Another thing that needs to be said, I think, um, marriage between a Christian and non-Christian, it will be full of challenges. Some examples I can think of. There'll be questions and differences over how you spend the household budget. There'll be questions and differences over how you raise the kids. There'll be questions and differences about how you spend your time on a Sunday by coming to church or during the week with growth group. It's complex, isn't it? But on the issue of um, marriage between Christian and non-Christian, when Paul writes, and this is why I said um, coming back to 1 Corinthians would be helpful, When Paul writes to the Corinthian church, in chapter 7, he touches on it. Um, In the case of a marriage where one person becomes a Christian, have a look what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. I think it comes from the point of view of the the Corinthian church being paranoid about being holy at this point. And Paul saying, if you're married to a non-believer, it doesn't make you dirty. It doesn't mean your kids are a write-off. Don't leave. But the next verse in verse 15 says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. I I take it the situation is two people, they're married, one becomes a Christian and he's saying, stay married. But if the unbeliever wants to go, don't stop them. That's huge. The other thing to say about this situation is if you can choose who to marry, then I think you should take advice from uh, what, I think I've been showing you the wrong passages behind me here. You should take advice, I think, from what Paul says um, to, the, to the widow at the end of chapter 7. He says, a, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. He gives this example of someone who can choose whether to marry or not and says, marry a believer or stay single. That's his advice. It's messy though isn't it it's complicated and the reason i've taken to 1 corinthians 7 is because um, the the issue in ezra uh, 9 and 10 is holiness living for god but intermingling with the nations around presents this problem with marriage sin creates a mess and this side of jesus return we do our best to think 
through Christ's eyes and try to sort out this mess. Um, when we do make mistakes, though, how do you right the wrong? How do you fix the wrong? Let me give you another example. Consider, for example, a young couple, a Christian man or woman, dating a non-Christian. The relationship um, gets underway, they go too far and fall pregnant. What do you do? Should you encourage the Christian to marry or to separate? It's complicated, isn't it? What's right in God's eyes? What's good for the couple? What's good for the unborn child? What's the right thing to do? There's lots of grey, isn't there? We want to do what's most pleasing to God, but it's not always easy to work out. And so here at the end of the book of Ezra, it finishes on this low point, I think. Um, the two chapters bring to our attention, yes, the importance of being holy, but also the messiness and the complex, the complexities that come with being unfaithful to God. As Christians, we know Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to cover all sin, to deal with all sin. We know that as Christians, the Lord is Lord and judge. Jesus is Lord and judge. And we long for the day when he will return and sort out the mess, set things right. But we know that until Jesus returns, we strive to do our best to live according to God's word. Holiness and faithfulness still matter for Christians because though a lot has changed, God remains the same and he is our holy God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know how important it is for your people to be holy to you. Lord, you sent your son to die to make it so. Lord, we pray that as a group of Christians that you would help us to seek to understand your word, to be immersing ourselves in it, reading and understanding it through your spirit working in us. And Lord, we pray that you would give us mercy and kindness to be able to live in a way that is appropriate to you. Lord, please help us to strive to be holy and not to compromise. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.